Pitchers and catchers have reported, now it's your turn. Yahoo Fantasy Baseball Leagues are now open. Yahoo Fantasy app is the number one mobile app in fantasy baseball and the official fantasy game of Major League Baseball. Check out Yahoo Pro Leagues, public leagues where you play for cash. The best part is Yahoo handles all the money for you. No commissioner, buy-in for as little as $20 or as much as $1,000. You can also join a public league for free or create your own league with your friends. Flex your skills as a real GM. Trust your instincts or use access to the advanced analytics. Download the Yahoo Fantasy app or sign up now at yahoo.com fantasy baseball. Don't miss out on this monster baseball season. There's never been a better time to play. Friends, we return. Ringer MLB show is back from its offseason hiatus and good news will be back on our regular Tuesday schedule from now until either the end of the season uh, or the end of human civilization, whichever comes first. Uh, So today, as you might expect, we'll be very heavy on the recent Manny Machado news uh, with some general preview content sprinkled in. But first, before we get started with that, let me point you over to some highlights of content up at the ringer.com. We have covered the Manny Machado uh, signing pretty extensively. Ben and Zach and I have all written about it. Uh, Claire McNear will have something up soon if it's not up by the time you listen to this on the reaction from White Sox fans uh, to Manny Machado signing with the Padres. And in non-baseball news, I can recommend to you uh, Tyler Tynes wrote about Colin Kaepernick and his settlement with the NFL. And uh, we're also starting final season Game of Thrones preview material. So go over to TheRinger.com and check all that out. But don't do that right now. Right now, we're going to have Zach Cram and Ben Lindbergh. All right, so we said we'd bring the podcast back when something important happened, and it has. College baseball season is underway, and uh, here's a man who's pissed off that his Missouri, Missouri Tigers started the season one and two, Ben Lindbergh. My Missouri Tigers. Oh, it is great to be back and even greater and somewhat surreal to have something to talk about. Yeah, Ben, before we get started, Luke Laflamme. Arizona State pitcher or Girondin politician executed during the Reign of Terror? (laughs) Pitcher. Yes, he is a pitcher for the Arizona State Sun Devils. And uh, if you heard laughter on the other line, that's Zach Cram. Zach. Hello. I have no trivia for you. I just assume you know everything. I would have guessed that one correctly. So obviously the big news today is... This happens, oh, about an hour and 10 minutes before we were supposed to record our first podcast of the preseason. So, you know, you hear podcasters complain all the time about news breaking 10 minutes after they hit stop. The opposite happened to us. Uh, So we all went and wrote about this and came back several hours later. We're talking about it now. Uh, Ben, let's start with you. Let's did you uh, like obviously you thought this would happen. But, you know, what are your immediate reactions? Yeah, I, I was starting to doubt that it would ever happen. But yes, we knew it would eventually. And I'm I'm happy it did because really for much of this offseason, baseball was a tough hang. As we say in our Ringer Slack channel, it was just not bringing a lot of joy to any of us. And now we actually have a transaction to talk about. And I think the fact that Manny Machado went to the Padres, obviously somewhat surprising. It was heavily rumored in recent days, but Padres were not a leading candidate to get Manny Machado heading into the offseason, and they are rarely a leading candidate to get anyone, frankly. And that's what I focused on in my reaction, which is just that the Padres have really been the least star-powered franchise in baseball, possibly in the past couple decades, really in almost their whole history, but especially since Tony Gwynn was a star, since that Ken Caminiti MVP season in 1996, really, I, I looked at some of the star-level seasons they've had, and it's really the Padres and the Pirates in terms of just anonymity and just not having anyone who's very good, not coming close to contention They have one of the longest playoff droughts in baseball, and it's sort of nice. I I know that a lot of people were thinking, oh, this is sort of a snooze because Machado's a star, and now he's going to be playing for this team that no one watches. But there are reasons to watch the Padres now. They're about to be because they have baseball's best farm system, and they have Manny Machado. So disaster averted for Machado doesn't really change the free agent system as a whole and some of the problems that we've all been talking about all winter. But it is a a rare positive note in a a long and slow baseball offseason. And that feels like a good segue to Zach, who wrote about the the Padres angle. Yeah, the interesting thing, I think, is that there were so many 
I don't know if we want to get into whether San Diego counts as a big market or not, but there were so many teams you would characterize as maybe traditional buyers, like the Phillies and the Yankees, who are at some point or another connected to Machado. And he ended up going to San Diego, who, like Ben mentioned, has been pretty anonymous. But the Padres have one of the best farm systems in baseball. Even without Machado, they would have been a fun team for like prospect hipsters to start watching next uh, this upcoming season. They have Luis Urias and Francisco Mejia, who have already cracked the majors. They have Fernando Tatis Jr., who is on his way to the majors, will probably be up sometime this summer. And adding Machado sort of just adds that anchor to that future core. It's uh, kind of like one thing we were talking about before we started recording is how this is like the Jason Worth signing that the Nationals made earlier this decade, where Worth by himself didn't bring the Nationals to the playoffs, but Worth combined with a lot of the young players the Nationals were developing at that point did bring the Nationals to a lot of division titles. And that seems kind of like what this move is supposed to be for San Diego. Jason Worth was better with the Nationals than I think he gets a lot that he gets uh, credit for. Um, But Machado is just in a completely different class of player beyond that. And, you know, you look at, you know, Tatis in particular could be, uh, you know, he's if if uh, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. weren't or if he had been called up last year the way he should have been, then we'd be talking about Tatis as, as a potential number one uh, overall prospect in baseball. And I think the the timing of this is is cool because the Padres seem really well suited to take advantage of um, take advantage of the fact that uh, Machado is younger than your average big ticket free agent signing. Like, you know, Robinson Cano was was 30 or 31 when you signed with the Mariners. Whereas Machado's going to be his prime, not just as this current group of young players develops into their prime, but as guys like Buddy Reed and, and Chris Paddock and Mackenzie Gore come up. And, you know, those guys who are still a couple years away will become major league contributors while Machado's still uh you know, still a superstar as, you know, if everything goes according to plan, I think, you know, that's, that's the likelihood. So this is a team that I think will be very interesting that we'll maybe talk about like the Phillies last year or the Braves last year, um, as sort of a dark horse, uh, uh, playoff picture team. That's probably still a little short of making the playoffs. Um, but could really put, put pressure on the Dodgers in years to come. I would be derelict in my podcasting duties if I didn't bring up that at the start of this offseason, Michael and I predicted not where we thought the top free agents would necessarily sign, but where we wanted them to sign, where we thought they would be the best fit. And I did say Machado and the Padres would make sense. I admittedly also said I would be shocked if they ended up actually making that deal. But I think the Padres are probably shocked that they ended up being able to make this deal. I would guess if Machado had signed at a more typical free agent time in November or December, the Padres might not have even been involved at all. But because this process lengthened and became protracted, the Padres found an opening. Just repeat the part of the prediction that makes you look prescient, Zach. You yeah, don't need that's to the only one the that matters. Where you, where you said <laughs> that you'd sound shocked. But yeah, I think the thing is that everyone's thinking the Padres, who, what, why they signed Manny Machado. But I think we all kind of forgot that this is the second consecutive offseason, at least until potentially Harper signs for more money, that the San Diego Padres have signed the biggest contract given to an MLB free agent because they did the same thing almost a year ago exactly when they signed Eric Hosmer. I think we've all kind of overlooked that because Eric Hosmer never seemed like he should be the the highest paid free agent in any offseason. And I think he was kind of miscast in the role that they had envisioned for him, which was like mentor and leader, yes, but also guy who could be a bridge to the good teams and maybe make them at least respectable or not he also embarrassing. Wasn't the- the splashiest free agent. Yeah, you know, I mean, certainly not to the extent that Machado or Harper or even right. somebody like Patrick Corbin is. Yeah, the the Padres evidently thought of him as a star, but no one else really did. And now they have gotten the player that I think they thought they were getting when they actually signed Hosmer. So I think this moves the timeline up for them. It really established them establishes them as probably not a contender in 2019 unless absolutely everything goes right because they just don't have a whole lot of pitching on hand. But I think they already had the foundation that you look at them and think they are the team that is going to challenge the dominant Dodgers in the NL West eventually. And Machado maybe moves up that timeline or at least makes it more likely. Yeah. And I, to that point, like the Diamondbacks weren't that relevant when they signed Zach Greinke and the Nationals weren't that relevant when they signed Worth or, or, you know, only to a certain extent when they, when they signed Max Scherzer, like teams, this is how you vault from, Mm -hmm. you know, the most 
famous player on your team in the past 15 years is a fictional woman from a TV show that lasted, <laughs> you know, lasted 10 episodes to yeah, actually, yeah. Oh man. Julie Kliegman wa- uh, said, this is a good reason to, to bring pitch back. And I wanted to, to second that. Mm-hmm. Um, this is how you get from, from not making headlines to actually being relevant. And now we're bringing ourselves into, you know, much as I want every team to spend $300 million a year on payroll, it, you know, if we're looking for an exciting allocation of resources, we're in a position right now where the big teams in the National League, you know, this is particularly true in the National League, where the big teams like the Dodgers and the Cubs are, you know, they're sort of treading water. And, you know, we say that even as, you know, I think we'll, we might get to this later if we have time, but, um, you know, I think we all like what the Washington Nationals have done this offseason, uh, for instance. But like those big teams are not really distancing themselves. And now the middle, you know, the middle class is coming back to the pack. There could be as many as 13 interesting competitive teams in the National League this year, which, you know, I think the the Padres are because of the high end talent they have with Machado and some of their other young uh, uh, infielders might be more interesting than, than say the Reds or the, the pirates or, you know, um, uh, or the giants, but there's weirdly, the national league is in an okay place in terms of you can sell maybe the idea of contending to most fans of, of most of the teams in the national league. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think last year was the first time in many years, of course, that the NL actually was better than the American League, at least in interleague play. But I think it was also more entertaining. There was much more parity. And you have the same sort of super team structure in most of the AL this year, whereas the NL is going to be incredibly close. Not so much the West. I think the Dodgers still sort of have a, a stranglehold on that division for this year. But the NL Central and the NL East, which maybe we'll talk about a little later in the podcast, those are shaping up to be the best divisions in baseball. I was about to say my only regret. Uh, I dislike a lot of things about the way this offseason's gone, but I wish that I wish that like the White Sox had 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 signed one of these big free agents or the twins had had the, the off season that the Mets had, for instance, because, you know, we're getting so, you know, we saw, we saw this last year, almost every team in the national league was in it until the all-star break and every American league, uh, playoff spot was pretty much wrapped up by, by the trade deadline. And, you know, I just wish that there was somebody who could put pressure on Cleveland to sort of demonstrate the perils of trying to to shoot the moon and and win the you know win your division by winning eighty six games and spending eighty million dollars on payroll? Um, but so far, it looks like you know all, a lot of the teams that have sort of taken those incremental steps forward, saying like, well, you know, let's let's give it a shot, like the Padres seem to be doing, or the the Reds are doing, or the Phillies were trying to do. Um, a lot of those seem to be concentrated in in the national league and they might cannibalize each other. And I think it's important to maybe draw a distinction between this specific move for Machado and what some other teams have done, because Machado is not just an investment for the 2019 season. It's a a 10 year deal reportedly with an option after five. So that's at a minimum a half decade where again, the rest of the team will probably be rising to his level. So even if the Padres aren't quite ready for 2019, this signals in a very clear, secure way that they're going for it in 2020 and 2021 and so on. And I think there are a lot of teams in the American League where that the sort of particulars of their future plans are still up in the air. I think the White Sox are a perfect example of that. Even some other teams if they're rebuilding, they're saying, well, we're targeting like 2021, 2022. That's three years down the line from now. So at the very least, this is a team that we're sure is going to be trying for the next few seasons as other teams around the game maybe are not. It feels like that's hard to sell because it feels like that was what the um, what ownership across the league was selling you know, two, three years down the road. They were selling that two, three years ago and Harper Machado to, to say nothing of uh, Craig Kimbrell or Dallas Keuchel uh, took so long to sign. You know, Grandal didn't get as much inter- interest as you would have expected uh, based on his talent and the relative scarcity of, of catching talent uh, throughout the league. So, you know, I wrote about this a few weeks ago, but I wonder how long, um, you know, and obviously you're talking about the Padres who have made that big move already and have, you know, a, a lot of talent on the roster already. Um but saying, you know, be patient with us. I wonder how much patience your average fan 
uh, still has if they're still looking, you know, a couple years down the road. Yeah, I mean the Padres, you could convey in any number of ways just how bland they've been during the period that they've been bad. I mean, their franchise all-time home run leader is still Nate Colbert, and they've never thrown a (laughs) no-hitter, and they have the worst winning percentage of any franchise in baseball in the modern era. You could go on and on. They've redesigned their uniforms, and they're more exciting because they're brown. The brown, like uniform, the brown uniform seemed like it was going to be the best and most exciting move of the winter until they signed Machado. But yeah, I mean, five playoff appearances in 50 seasons, no World Series, et cetera, et cetera. But I think it's probably for the best from a, a sport-wide perspective that Machado went to a team like this. I, I think there's something to be said for having a super team. So if you want to have the Yankees and the Dodgers and the Red Sox and all the hateable teams be good, I think that's a plus for a sport. But we already have that. All those teams are already good. And I don't think that making them slightly better would move the needle that much in terms of entertainment value. So I think this is good because it takes a team that was completely uninteresting and suddenly makes it much more relevant. And I think in an offseason when people have been complaining about tanking and teams not trying to compete, this is another team we can cross off that list of potential teams that aren't really trying. I I still think that's letting San Diego off the hook a little bit too easy because you look at their payroll. It's still I think they're it's still below what the Reds are spending. For instance, you know this is still a bottom third payroll even after adding the uh, you know to date the most expensive free agent contract in baseball history. So and you, you know you as exciting and like there's a lot of talent in the outfield. There are a lot of individual players I like. I love this infield if if Urias and and Machado and um, uh, and Tatis are going to play together this year. But this pitching staff, like, I like Eric Lauer as much as the next guy, but it is it is not playoff caliber uh, is uh, the adjective I have chosen to use to be <laughs> diplomatic about this. And, you know, there's still a lot of pitching upgrades out there to be made. You know, they're in a position, like, forget Keuchel or Gio Gonzalez. Like, I don't know, there's, you could you'd still get guys beyond that who uh, who could improve this team. Um, from a pitching standpoint, which I don't know if like if their plan is to just bank on on them playing in a giant ballpark and just at, you know out home or everybody else, but it's uh, that pitching staff is going to be rough, and I think that's the biggest reason that this this signals a move to contention. But there's a very real possibility the Padres could still disappoint. It does bring up sort of on the the granular level the possibility that maybe they do try and take advantage now that they've started opening this window to wrench it even further, maybe by trading one of their outfielders for a, a pitcher for a team like maybe, you know, I know Cleveland probably isn't going to trade Corey Kluber at, at this point, but maybe like Atlanta, which could use another outfielder and has a lot of young pitchers. Maybe there's a young guy for young guy swap that could sort of fill the positional needs for both teams. Maybe even Will Myers could find a new team because he's making a lot of money and maybe the Padres Yes, their ownership is willing to spend $30 million for Machado, but maybe they would like to see a step back also with getting rid of Will Myers' salary. Mm -hmm. And obviously, this is tough for White Sox fans and the White Sox themselves who were sort of banking, I think, on adding Machado. At least they have Yonder Alonso and John Che hanging around now to ease their pain. And this obviously puts some more pressure on the Phillies now since their fans have been counting on that team to land at least one of these guys. And Harper is now the the last big hitter standing. So all eyes turn to him and them, even though, of course, they have had one of the most active offseasons as it is. My feelings about the Phillies offseason are a little complicated because they got a lot of players I liked, but these are the moves that they've made have, have felt sort of like the moves you make to fill out the roster after you get the guy and they just haven't gotten the guy yet. So, mm-hmm. like, you know, I, I, I like the Segura deal. Even the other, I mean, the other reason I'm ambivalent is the, the people they traded away are, are players that the Phillies are, I think, down on relative to consensus, and I'm very high on relative con- to consensus. You know, with Crawford and Alfaro and and Sixto Sanchez. Um, but yeah, I mean, they still need another piece, and they've got the money to spend. They were running close to a 200 million dollar payroll almost a decade ago. So imagine, you know, with the uh with all the new revenue that Major League Baseball is bringing in, you know, they're I don't know, I don't know how much this, this really matters, but in Philadelphia there's very much a, a sense of media competition between the teams for for coverage and they're, you know, falling behind and they talked a big game and so far 
you know, McCutcheon's good and David Robertson is good and, you know, Segura's good and Real Muto's good, but, you know, they haven't really made that splash yet after they promised, you know, after after they really talked up doing so. So I think that, you know, there is more pressure, I think, on on the Phillies than there is on the White Sox, who I think aren't aren't as close, even though maybe because of the state of the division, they might have more to gain by going after Harper. Um, but, you know, both of those teams, I think, really need to make a move. And it's still... I mean, this is this is what I want to talk to or talk about before we go to break is, you know, even in this this high, you know, after we've we've talked about um, Manny Machado finally signing like spring training's underway and these deals are, are were traditionally done two months ago, if not if not further in the past. So just the the rhetoric between between players and ownership. And this is you know, that's something that's really ramped up. There's really you know, it's felt like a malaise around the sport. Like it's not fun that it feels like, you know, it, it feels like a chore to follow baseball when, when the, you know, there's not really a competitive race to, uh, you know, to, to build winning teams, you know? So I don't want to say that, that Machado signing alleviates that, but you know, what does that do to, to that atmosphere? atmosphere and you know to me this really feels like we're just playing out the string for for three seasons until a strike yeah it does feel like that it's nice just for one day to go to mlb trade rumors or go to twitter and not see either rob manfred saying something that seems slightly disingenuous or an owner talking about how they can't afford free agents or players punching back Understandably so, but still, I don't think any of us is necessarily following the sport for the labor strife, except possibly you, Michael. I well, I was going to say, like, I'm, I'm <laughs> but, like in the top one percent of people who follows the the, right. the sport for its labor strife. But like, at some point, I just want to talk about fucking baseball, you know? Right? Like, exactly. This, <laughs> and, like, and it's frustrating because the baseball players are better than they've ever been, I think. And there's such an incredible crop of young players, and there are a lot of entertaining teams out there and yet it seems like the sport can't get out of its way and maybe it's that we're in this Twitter bubble and we're covering the sport and we're hyper focused on all of this I'm sure there are many fans out there who just kind of checked out for the winter as they usually do and now they're getting excited again because pitchers and catchers have reported and people are playing games at least intra-squad stuff so maybe we are not totally representative of how Every fan experiences the sport, but I think it is a shame that so much of the conversation around baseball is about its economic issues, is about pace of play and length of games, is about three true outcomes and strikeout rates. I'm not saying that it it doesn't all deserve to be talked about, but it is, I think, unfortunate that that seems to be the dominant narrative at a, a time when really there's also a lot to love about baseball. Maybe we can just all get back to what we love about the sport, why we care enough about this activity to get upset about the things that go wrong in the first place. And I think there's like almost reason to be more direct about that, that it isn't just a shame that this is part of the necessary conversation. It's a shame that there have been choices made by ownership and by the league and by whomever that are sort of forcing this kind of conversation upon us. It's not as if this conversation sprung out of, out of nowhere. It's because of agency and because of choices that have led to free agents lingering on the market for a while, choices that have led to Yasmani Grandal and Mike Moustak is having to accept one-year deals instead of the traditional four-year, maybe three-year deals that they would have been accustomed to, choices that are already leading to us talking about Vladimir Guerrero Jr. being forced to start the season in the minor leagues, even though he's probably already the best player on Toronto's roster. It really sucks that we have to talk about that, but how do you analyze the Blue Jays heading into 2019 without that becoming the first part of your discussion? Yeah, I think it's some, that's the big shift that happened this year is like it, it became impossible to to analyze the game without talking about the the economic dysfunction. And I think, you know, I live inside this very baseball centric, probably, you know, very lefty uh, uh uh, bubble of, of discourse when it comes to baseball. But, you know, when I talk to more casual fans, you know, from outside of my my baseball life, just anecdotally, I've found them to be more curious about and more receptive to uh, arguments about why Harper and Machado hadn't signed. That it is like, you know, a systemic economic issue within the game. And, you know, 
they're interested in knowing about you know why that's why this is going on. I think this is. I think it's why it's smart that guys like you know Colin McHugh and and uh, Justin Verlander have spent so much time on on social media, or, and Sean Doolittle's obviously always at the forefront of this, talking about these issues and and you know why this is important. And we're seeing that style of discourse has a a chance to really resonate with fans as they look at the the broader political economic picture of American society as as a whole. You know, this is something that three or four years ago. You know, I was using, you know, writing about stuff like the Matt Harvey uh, situation with the Mets in 2015 to talk about labor relations and, you know, outside of baseball. Whereas now that the it's sort of reversed, that people are seeing these things in their own lives and saying, oh, you know, baseball players are going through this too. The reason that, that, you know, I'm a Phillies fan and they haven't signed Craig Kimbrell and, uh, and Bryce Harper is related to, you know, this frustration with, you know, with the, with, uh, uh, the economic path of American society at large. So maybe, you know, maybe that's still a little too insular and Pollyanna-ish. You know, maybe I'm I'm reading into what I want to see, but I think the this is it's become impossible to ignore. Like this is a political and economic conversation now that you can't you can't ignore if you want to discuss baseball intelligently. Yeah. And I think one thing to keep in mind as well is that even though Harper and Machado have become the faces of free agency because they're the two most prominent free agents and because they took so long to sign, I think we should keep in mind that they are not necessarily representative of the average free agent and that what happens with their free agency doesn't necessarily tell us all that much about the market as a whole. I think a lot of people might look at this and say, hey, Machado got $300 million. Hopefully Harper gets his money in the next couple of weeks and maybe everyone will say, okay, they signed, they got a lot of money. Maybe it wasn't quite as much as we thought they would get at one time, but it's still a whole lot of cash. But I think what we're seeing in free agency is not so much that the star player in his prime like Harper and Machado who are 26 year old 26 years old and rare talents they're not the guys who are suffering as much as the guys who are past 30 i'm more dismayed by say Yasmani Grandal signing for 1 year and 18 million dollars than i am by the fact that Harper and Machado had to wait until mid-February to get serious about signing. I think that's more representative of the systemic issues that can't necessarily be solved without some sort of larger change in the structure of baseball's economics and free agency. Because Harper and Machado, they're 26. Those guys don't come along often. They're going to get paid. But the guys who are 30, who are not quite at that class of player, who once could have cashed in and counted on a long-term deal – they can't anymore, and I think right. that's the the more notable change. And w- and that's you know what we've seen is it's not that you know I guess players are signing uh, later, but what you see is guys like Harper and Machado um, knowing that they can wait out that market. And Kimbrel and Keuchel, I think, are examples of players who think they or are betting they, they they're good enough to uh, to wait out that market and demand what they you know what I think is reasonable to, to claim that they're worth. And then you get, you know, Evaldi, Nathan Evaldi and Patrick Corbin signed relatively quickly for, I think, a you know, about what you would expect based on what we've seen the, the past few off seasons. And then everybody else is signing instead of five-year deals, they're signing two or three-year deals. And instead of $20 million a year, they're signing for 12 or $15 million a year. And everybody else is just getting squeezed a little bit across the board. And, the, the headliners, you know, I, I think Machado and Harper have been convenient poster boys for for this. But, you know, you're right. The the real worrying people in, or the people that, that I would be worried about are, you know, not that I'm like worried about Yasmani Grandal because he's still got send his grandchildren to private school money. Um, but, you know, this is a guy who who should have come into free agency expecting to to sign a four or five year deal worth up to 20 million dollars a year. And he. You know, did he even make make back the the qualifying offer tender? Um, so it's yeah, and, and within and now you're looking at at players like Evan Longoria and Justin Verlander who are saying who like who feel strongly enough about this having got theirs already, barking back to the younger players and saying this is what's going to happen to you. And now you know we've got I think more public sympathy behind the union and more uh, and better messaging from the union and the players on this uh, than, than really I would have thought possible as recently as six months ago. 
So anything more on, on Machado? Anything more on, on the broken economics of baseball? <laughs> we, we have three more years to talk about that. Oh, that's a good <laughs> point. We don't... All right. Uh, so let's take a little break and then we'll come back and, and uh, do a little more league-wide preview stuff. And so we'll be right back after this. Pitchers and catchers have reported. Now it's your turn. Yahoo Fantasy Baseball Leagues are now open. Yahoo Fantasy app is the number one mobile app in fantasy baseball and the official fantasy game of Major League Baseball. Check out the Yahoo Pro Leagues, public leagues, where you play for cash. The best part is Yahoo handles all the money for you. No commissioner, buy-in for as little as $20 or up to $1,000. You can also join a public league for free or create your own league with your friends. The new weekly scoring format makes it even easier to run your team all season. Fletcher Skills is a real GM. Trust your instincts or use access to analytics. Find your sleepers or stash some minor league talent. The top 10 prospects for each MLB team are available. Use a set active players feature to set your lineup for the week in just one tap. Download the Yahoo Fantasy app or sign up now at yahoo.com slash fantasy baseball. Create your own league, join a public league, renew your league from last year. Just don't miss out on this monster baseball season. There's never been a better time to play Yahoo Fantasy Baseball. All right, so we're back with uh, what was the original plan for uh, for this uh, episode before we knew that Manny Machado was going to sign. We're going to talk about a couple teams whose off-seasons we really liked and disliked just by way of resetting, uh, you know, resetting the landscape, uh, you know, because it's been a couple months since, since we've talked to y'all. So uh, we're going to go through this pretty quickly. Uh, this is not going to be exhaustive. So if your team is in here or is, is not in here, we will talk about your team soon enough. And that doesn't mean that we, you know, we hated everything you did or, you know, whatever. Um, so we're just going to go real quick through a couple teams that, uh, that we thought deserve special notice. Uh, first of all, one team that, that I really like what they've done this off season is the Cincinnati Reds. Um, so they've, they've traded for, Yasiel Puig, Alex Wood, um, Matt Kemp, Sonny Gray, Tanner Roark. They're going to call up Nick Senzel, who's a top prospect in baseball, or one of the top prospects in baseball. Uh, it was a source of great consternation when Puig was traded uh, among our ringer MLB Slack, who is very Los Angeles-focused. Uh, I can report by viewing Puig's Instagram that he is ready to be a big fish in a small pond, so I'm really looking forward to that. Mostly, I think, like, they're risking relatively little. Like, they're just going to put up put up what looks like a, a fun, pretty competitive team and to build it, to bring in those five guys. They didn't really give up anybody that they were relying on to their next, you know, for their next rebuild. They didn't give up Senzel. They didn't give up uh, Taylor Trammell, you know, anybody uh, on the, of that nature. So, you know, this is a really tough division. This is a team uh, like the Padres. that has a few question marks about its pitching, but you know, I, I am looking forward to watching the Cincinnati Reds for the first time in a long time. They've been bad for so long, and particularly <laughs> right. their pitching has been bad for so long that just to see them have like capable starters could make a huge difference. Yeah, that's really the only thing that we've had to say about the Reds in recent years was just tracking how historically terrible their pitching staff was. It was literally a replacement-level pitching staff, and they've changed that now with Gray, with Roark, with Wood. I think they're probably not still there. I, I think they are very similar to the Padres in that they're this team that we haven't focused on lately because they haven't done a whole lot. And even after what they did do, I don't think they're quite ready to contend, particularly in the NL Central. But if everything broke right, maybe there's some kind of wildcard contention that could happen there. And as you said, I don't think they really jeopardized anything long term because a lot of these guys, Kemp, Puig, Wood, they're coming up on free agency they didn't really give up any of their most prized prospects to get these guys. So they made themselves more interesting and didn't really have to mortgage their future to do it. Yeah. I, you know, I think a reasonable expectation is of an interesting 500 team that maybe gives the Brewers or the Cubs a bloody nose down the stretch um, and plays meaningful baseball late in the season. And, you know, when's the last time we said that about Cincinnati? It's like, is it all the way back in 2012 was the last time that they were this relevant? Um, so, and, I mean, to I, th I think it was Zach's point, like, this is not going to shock you guys coming, you know, knowing the kind of pitchers I like, but there is so something to be said for just getting competent innings eating starting pitchers now more than ever. Like the, the guy who could throw 180 league average innings was an afterthought, you know, even five years ago. Now guys like Roark are, are incredibly valuable. Like somebody has got to pitch those innings. 
And if it's Tanner Roark giving you six innings and three or four earned runs every time through the rotation, that takes such, you know, such a strain off the off the bullpen. It, it's got to have an incredible knock on effect. So it, there's a, a, a lot to like about Cincinnati this year. All right, so let's uh, move to this is going to sound weird because they're losing certainly their, you know, one of their highest profile players, uh, if not their best player. I kind of like what the Nats did, you know, signing signing Patrick Corbin. You really get a sense that they had a lot of depth behind uh, um, behind Harper. And, you know, if they go into this, you know, making an effort to to resign, say, Anthony Rendon, you know, they've still got a lot to rebuild them. Yeah, I think that's true. There seemed to be a sense in the last couple of years of Harper's tenure there, assuming he doesn't end up going back, that there was some sort of window closing. But I think that changed toward the end of his time because you have Robles, because you had Juan Soto establish himself as seemingly a superstar. Suddenly you could look at this team and think that even without Harper, who frankly wasn't a huge asset to the team in in 2018, they could still contend and be good both in the short and long term. So again, as we were just saying with the Reds, really tough division, NL East no less tough. But I think unlike the Reds, you could perhaps envision the Nationals still as the favorite in this division. It's it's hard to say, especially if Harper ends up going to the Phillies. It's going to be really tight at the top there. And other than the Marlins, all these teams are going to be beating up each beating up on each other all season long. So I don't know that there's a clear favorite, but I could see the Nationals ending up victorious, which, of course, we all would have said last season, too. And sort of similar to the Reds, just to keep with this theme, is that I think the Nationals did a really good job of discerning what their biggest holes were and addressing them pretty early in the offseason. Like catcher has been a problem with them for a couple of years now, ever since Wilson Ramos got hurt. And they went out and traded for Jan Gomes from Cleveland and they signed Kurt Suzuki, who now form one of the better catching tandems in the game. Their bullpen's been a problem. They signed Trevor Rosenthal coming off of surgery. They, they traded for Kyle Bearclaw. Uh, the back of the rotation has been a problem. So they signed Anibal Sanchez. They brought back Jeremy Hellickson in addition to go with Corbin. So they just were pretty smart in making sure that, or at least trying to prevent any replacement level players from accruing a number of at-bats or innings pitched. And that gives them a pretty high floor in addition to the immense ceiling that they already had. Yeah. And, you know, if we're operating under the assumption that they lose Harper, the season that Juan Soto had last year gives them so much leeway uh, to move on from him just in terms of the out- outfield depth that, that he provides and like an impact bat right away. The last thing I want to say about Washington is I've liked to draw the parallel between this Nationals team with with Harper and Strasburg and Scherzer and Rendon to the turn of the century Mariners with uh, with Edgar Martinez and A-Rod and Ken Griffey Jr. and, um, and Randy Johnson. And it, in terms of teams that had so little postseason success to, despite uh, putting together just an unfathomable amount of big league talent. And, you know, it. one thing that, that I often forget even is that the years after Griffey left, the Mariners made the ALCS both years in the in the first years after Griffey left, and the uh, the second one of those was the 116 win season, and the two seasons after that they won 93 games each, even though they didn't make the playoffs. So, like, I don't know if Bryce Harper is Ken Griffey Jr. in this metaphor. Maybe that's what this looks like for the Nationals over the the next couple seasons. Michael predicts the Nationals win 116 games. Write it down. Hey, man. <laughs> Hey, man, it could happen. I, or maybe I'll just do what you always do and say, oh, no, it would be cool if the Nationals won 116 games <laughs> in, in 2020 and then tell people I was. Yeah. Or, you know, uh, based on on inflation of of your uh, your Oakland A's pick, I'm picking the Nationals to make the playoffs in one of the next two seasons. And when they win 116, I'll say that I called it all along. Um, so uh, one team that. Uh, that also uh, comes into the season with high expectations and really did a good job of, of filling in around the edges was uh, the Milwaukee Brewers. So, Zach, why don't you uh, kick us off with with what the Brewers have done and why we liked it? So while the Grand Allen Moustakas contracts might not have been ideal for those players, and I think it's important to keep that in mind, they worked out great for the Brewers, who you know, have been spending more money than they've ever spent before signing Lorenzo Cain last year, signing Julius Chassin, trading for Christian Yelich, and now adding these two free agents. I think the NL Central is 
such a beast. We'll get to the Cubs in a minute, I think, but the Cubs are now projected to finish in last place in the division. They've won, you know, a couple or come close a few years in a row. So any additional like fraction of a win will really matter in the NL Central and the Brewers did well to shore up those holes. I think they could do well to add another starting pitcher or two, but given their great defense and their flexibility with the bullpen, maybe that's less of a concern for them than it would be for another team. Yeah, we've talked about this before, but it just seems like the Brewers have really been the model team recently when it comes to the kind of behavior that people are pointing to other teams and saying, why aren't they going all in? Why aren't they signing guys? Why aren't they trying harder? The Brewers, why can't you be more like the Brewers? The Brewers did their rebuild without ever actually getting bad. And now that they've gotten good, they have pushed in their chips and they have gone and they've gotten Kane and Yelich and they were there to snag Grandal when he slipped to them. So I think they've been active. They've done a really good job of finding free talent, essentially, over the last couple of years, as well as signing more expensive talent. So they have built up some depth. They have some prospects on the way. Because they got good quickly, they didn't really build up the incredibly deep system that some of the other rebuilders have, but they've managed to transcend that because they've been so good at picking up guys who are already major league ready and seemingly no one else wanted. So I think they've done an admirable job. And again, they are in an extremely tight division, and I don't know if they've done enough, but they've done as much as anyone could expect them to. Yeah, I think they more than anybody else have taken advantage of this economic dysfunction and really played the system well. Um, one, you know, question, you know, you brought up their prospects. I love Keston Hura. I am interested to see where he fits, uh, probably at second base when he, when he eventually comes up and we'll see how that overcrowded infield shakes up. Um, the one question mark I still have is the rotation as good as that bullpen was. And as much as that, that bullpen buys you a lot of, uh, a lot of ability to play around with your rotation. They lost Wade Miley. Um, we'll see how much moving Corbin Burns and Brandon Woodruff to the rotation full time will help, but they still don't have that stopper. That's the one thing that I would worry about in a situation where, you know, are you going against Lester or Hendricks or Hamels or whichever Cubs pitcher is, uh, you know, is throwing well at that particular point in time, or, you know, the Cardinals have, um, Carlos Martinez. We'll see what what they get out of Alex Reyes. There's a lot of good pitching in that division, and I I you know even as much as I love Corbin Burns, I I wonder where Milwaukee's number one starter is. Which I say that knowing how far they went without a traditional number one starter last year. So let's uh, spend a couple minutes on. And like I said, there are other teams that we like. We'll talk about every team in depth uh, as we get closer to the season. But let's just quickly hit a couple of the highlights. Um, in terms of teams that we really wish had done better this offseason. Um, so let's start again with Zach with the Cubs. So the Cubs, I think their biggest offseason acquisition is Daniel Descalso, who has hit surprisingly well for what you might expect out of Daniel Descalso recently. But that's also not the acquisition a team might want when it's competing against, say, the Brewers, who have added the best catcher in baseball, or the Cardinals, who have added Paul Goldschmidt, or the Reds, who have added an entire new rotation. So given how good the NL Central is going to be, according to baseball prospectuses, Pakota projections right now, every team is projected to win at least 79 games, be within a stone's throw of a playoff spot. That puts the Cubs at a, at a disadvantage because they're depending on players who are getting older and players essentially to repeat their performances. They can't, they can't accept any fallback from their key players. Chris Bryant probably going to hit better now that he's no longer hurt. Same with Anthony Rizzo. Hugh Darvish basically can't be as bad as he was last year in his injury marred debut season. But beyond the stars, the Cubs have very little depth. They don't essentially have a number six starter on the roster if any of their top guys goes down. And that just puts Joe Madden's team in a really precarious position. And that's just on the field. That's not even getting into all of the pretty terrible off the field stuff the Cubs have been up to this winter. It's been a really tough offseason for them. Yeah, I think part of the problem is, and you brought up Pakoda. Um, I did a radio hit in Chicago last week, and they are not happy about the about Pakoda picking uh, the Cubs. I think they were last in the division. at the. I haven't checked in a couple days since the, the uh, projections have shaken out a little bit. But um, I think that might overstate the amount of peril the Cubs are in a little bit. I think uh, part of the issue is that the DRA doesn't like uh, some of their starting pitchers and maybe they, you know, they outpitch, uh, 
um, what their projections are just because they got a good defense behind them. But if there, you do see a little bit of that downside as the, the team gets older. Yeah. So the other teams that we wanted to talk about in, in this little segment are other projected division winners that just haven't done a whole lot, the Dodgers and the Indians. And I, you know, you look at the Dodgers and obviously they traded Puig and Kemp. They let Grandal and Machado go. They brought in Pollock and Kelly, but everyone's been waiting for them to make more of a move, whether it was trading for one of the Indian starters, and we can talk about that in a moment, or signing Harper. And obviously, neither of those things is entirely off the table, but they haven't made that big move, and Puig to Pollock seems like a lateral move. So yeah. I, don't, I don't think you can argue that they've gotten better. I, I would defend them to a certain extent. I think they've come under fire quite a bit for not spending more and for talking incessantly about competitive balance tax and why they're not spending, which memo to teams. I feel like if you're not going to spend, just don't even talk about why you're not spending because it just seems to dig the hole even deeper from a PR perspective. But I think you look at the Dodgers, they've won six consecutive division titles. They've won back-to-back pennants. No one is pushing them. So I would point the finger more at the Dodgers competitors or would-be competitors than I would be at the Dodgers themselves because you look at the Fangrass projections right now, I think there's 12 wins of daylight between the Dodgers and the next best team. So you can look and you can say, well, they could afford to get better players and better players would make them better, but they've been in back-to-back World Series and they know how easily those things can go awry and making a big free agent signing certainly doesn't guarantee that you can go from pennant winner to World Series winner. So I don't know. I think they have spent a ton in the past. They had baseball's biggest payrolls for a while. I'm sure that they could go back to that level when they need to, when someone forces them to. But right now, no one is. And I think it's almost human nature. If you're not being spurred to do something, you just sort of remain at rest. And that's what the Dodgers seem to be doing. So this sounds like you want Bryce Harper with the juice ball in Coors Field. This is what (laughs) I'm hearing from you. Yeah, that'd be a fun spectacle. I'm always in favor of sluggers going to, to Colorado. And and as for the Indians, just because I said we'd lump them together, they have been the subject or the originator of trade rumors all season long. They have not traded Kluber or Bauer as we speak, but they were clearly considering it. Their payroll is what in the, the 110 million range, somewhere around there. And they basically don't have an outfield. So every time someone signs an outfielder or trades for an outfielder, you can say, well, why didn't Cleveland go get that guy? Because it would have made them better. I think, again, you look at the projections and they're about 10 wins better than the next AL Central team. This is why what I said earlier, I wish the Twins (laughs) had had the Mets offseason. Right. Yeah. Maybe maybe that puts a little bit of pressure on them. But we're coming off a a year where the AL Central was, I think, the second weakest division of all time. It was the Indians and a bunch of terrible teams. So it's hard to I guess you look at it and you think, well, yeah, they could be better. And maybe if they make an upgrade, it, it gets them a little deeper in the playoffs. But it's a good team and it's hard, I guess, to have the incentive to go from good to great if there aren't any other good teams challenging you. Yeah, I mean, there is something a little bit paradoxical about, you know, we're ripping the Dodgers, the Indians, and the Cubs, and I, you know, I I expect the Dodgers and Indians to win their division. I think the Cubs are at worst co-favorites with the the Brewers and Cardinals. Um, so these are obviously it's this is very much about perception that these are three teams that that have made a lot of splashes and are just sort of standing still as you know, they've watch teams like the Red Sox and the Astros really pass them by over the past couple of years. And this has been a very easy free agent market to get a lot better very quickly as the Brewers have shown. So it's just, you know, disappointing. I mean, disappointing. I don't have any particular uh, um, skin in the game with either of these or any of these teams being good or bad. But, you know, you want to see the best teams really, really pushing themselves. And I think we got I, I will say it is a little bit a little bit disappointing that we saw like a glimpse of we saw the face of God with that Dodgers team for the the first two thirds of a twenty seventeen and it's a, it's a bit of a bummer that it looks like we're never going to get that back. I think lower down the I guess the hierarchy in baseball right now you do have teams like the Twins mostly in the American League honestly that have disappointed by not adding more this offseason. The Twins, you could go with the Blue Jays, you could go with a few of the AL West teams. 
Uh, Jason Stark of The Athletic did his annual column where he asks executives around the game a bunch of poll questions, and he said for the first time ever this year, he couldn't find three teams in the American League that people thought actually improved. So if you take that as just a snapshot of the whole league, it it paints a, a pretty dire picture about what basically all of those teams did this offseason. Yeah, I do want to go into go into more depth uh, with the Twins, but we'll do that in a future episode because um, they've had a very they've had an interesting off season um, where you know they they've done a lot of things I liked, but they also I feel like you know so much of this is opportunity cost or, or missing the chance to to do something to to make your team better for not a whole lot of risk or not a whole lot of money, um, and uh, you know that's most of all I think that's what disappoints me about the state of baseball's economics right now is you know watching watching teams take fat pitches you know, you know to use an obvious metaphor and i think the the twins have done that to an extent but you know like i said we'll we'll get to to that as we uh you know work through the the preseason preview so all right uh anything else guys no i think it's good to be back yeah, so i <laughs> hopefully more things keep happening and giving us things to talk about I tell you what, I uh, I was worried my voice box wouldn't work after my hundred days of silence. I don't talk to anybody if I don't <laughs> talk to y'all. So, uh, oh, one thing that that I, uh, one piece of news that I I hope didn't get uh, passed too far under the radar. Um, Don Newcomb, the the famous Brooklyn Dodgers pitcher, uh, passed away this afternoon. Um, it, he we did some memorial coverage for Frank Robinson. Um, you know, we, and we haven't done a, an obit for Don Newcomb, but he was world series winner, Cy Young winner, uh, hugely influential figure in the, uh, uh, the history of the Dodgers, the history of integration of baseball. So, um, you know, people who've known him have, have posted tributes throughout the day. You know, you can't see, you know, can't find anybody with anything bad to, to say about him. So, you know, we want to notice that and send our condolences to, uh, people who knew and loved the the former Dodger pitcher Don Newcomb, first ever Cy Young winner. Oh yeah, that's that's true. Um, all right, so we started happy and, and ended sad, and we will, I'm sure, uh, oscillate rapidly from emotional emotion as the the spring goes on. Um, but it's good to be back. We'll be coming back with new shows every Tuesday uh, throughout the the preseason and throughout the regular season, and we'll you know adjust the the schedule as. Uh, um, as necessary, but we are back to our, our in general, we are back to our, our regularly scheduled weekly program. So, uh, you know, like I said, I missed y'all. So I'm, I'm glad we're doing this. Yeah. Talk to you next week. All right. I was right. <laughs>